0: entertainment, education, and information purposes only. and As discussed,
1: should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. but more than views, statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the and should not be interpreted as official policy or
0: positions of any entity. Aside from possibly cash-like rewards and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to everyone. You should always do your homework and let us know. When we're ready. Coming into the show with a lot of energy, yeah, we just, no, we just did a group clap, uh, there's six of us here, we're just, we're doing our second recap from SG SGIM, SGIM, we kind of had this fight already We're still on debating,
1: air. yeah, I think SGIM seems safest, yeah, but the energy's palpable, the clap really, <laughs> really got everyone going, on it, so.
0: <laughs> so uh, I'll name everybody and then you can reintroduce yourselves as we go around, but we have with us Shreya Trivedi, Carolyn Chan, Justin Burke, and Nora Toronto. And we are going to be just recapping some of our favorite pearls from the day, but maybe just just for the heck of it. Paul, why don't you tell people about the show?
1: Sure. As you all know, the show in general, the curbsiders, or what what did you want from me then?
0: Yeah, Paul. Why don't you tell people what we normally? <laughs> Paul, why don't
1: you any tell show people? one show that you've seen in the
2: past? I'm so year. tired. Doesn't I'm have to be
1: medicine related. <laughs> the Battle of the Network Stars. It was wild. So it was these celebrities, and they would just do circus things. Like they were just trained to like tame lions and and walk on trapezes. Really, really fun. Um, no one got hurt, to my knowledge. And I'm I'm surprised they don't do it anymore.
0: Okay. Um,
1: so good stuff. I'm totally We are the lost. Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert <laughs> interviews for you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. This time around, we are your experts, and we are experts because we've been attending uh, conferences and talks and workshops about various topics here at SGIM. Uh, and by we, I mean everybody else who's here. I'll just uh, serve as backup cheerleader.
0: And I think we're going to start because we, we do—the conference is still going on. We have some people that have to get out and go to sessions. So I think first up, we just got to go to our, our team— Shrabies, uh Justin and Shreya.
2: What up? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, Shreya, your mic was off, and uh, we're gonna let's pretend like you didn't just say what you said. So, this is
1: the internal medicine podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge.
3: Oh my goodness. Okay, uh, we were Justin and I, uh, Shrabies, We were just talking about um, a, a clinical update. I went to on career development. This is a new. Uh, a new uh, session that SGM has this year. And there was two uh, studies that I thought were really intriguing. Both were presented by Daniela Zipkin of Duke. Um, And so, Justin. Mm, I'm ready. uh, One of the studies, I want you to tell me what you think about it. Uh, Do you think generalists are better or worse than medical and surgical specialists in terms of academic productivity and getting to professorship?
2: You know, Shreya, I think that the generalists are the underdog in medicine. I think they are more prolific in getting grant funding and writing papers, but are not getting the recognition they deserve and are not getting the promotions that uh, they deserve.
3: Yeah, so I think you're on to something. I don't think that that's fully the case. So um, there was... <laughs> <laughs> Un- uh, great unbiased opinion. Great, great, <laughs> yeah, great feedback, yeah. uh,
1: But super A++ crowd pandering. Yeah. <laughs> a really strong work there. All
3: right, so um, this study, uh, which I thought was uh, cool in that it back in 1995, Um, there was a national faculty survey about 1,800 full-time faculty around the country and followed them 17 years later in 2013 and said, Hey guys, what is uh, like the number of publications you've had? What's your faculty rank? Um, the number of grants you've received, and in terms of the differences between a generalist and a medical or a surgical subspecialist, there was no difference in saying in receiving a federal grant in the last two years. So we're okay on that level, but despite that. Um, in terms of academic professorship or um, publications, generalists are statistically significantly less in those regards. And so just to give you some numbers to wrap your head around, um, a generalist after 17 years has about an average of 44 publications versus a medical or surgical specialist has about 57 publications. Um, and, And then in terms of getting to professorship, Fifty-three percent of those professors, or fifty-three percent of those faculty, became professors uh, of the generalist versus sixty-six percent of the medical specialists or the surgical specialists became professors. So we are a little behind on that, and there's all these reasons that we could think of as to why. And I think the study is obviously limited in that this is from like back in 1995. Um, a lot of things can happen in 17 years from those full-time faculty, but I think in terms of generalists. Uh, for us, publication doesn't always equate to um, scholarship. Or, so, sorry, I'm rephrase that. Scholarship doesn't always equate to publications. We are often doing other teaching roles and things that like podcasts. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole new thing of of, of, of of yeah. How do how do we translate that into uh, academic currency? Or real
1: currency uh, as far as that goes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's 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 get on to the other paper, though. Okay, Justin, this is a true and false question. Ready. Um, do you think GIM institutional leaders uh, hold peer-reviewed publications as highly important for the development of a clinician educator?
2: True, so- yes. <laughs> I
3: think that... Peer-reviewed publications are always the way to go. <laughs> uh,
2: I do think that they think that those are important... Uh, though perhaps should also be looking at... Uh, podcasts, other more innovative <laughs> forms of medical education dissemination.
3: Yes, new modes of delivery. Okay, so uh, you, were, you, I think you said true, and it was a trick question. It's like it's true and false actually. So Got this, you, this, huh. uh, this was a survey of uh, uh, about 130 GIM division directors in 2011s, uh, and asked them, "Hey, can you rank these various clinician educator scholarly activities from very important to important to not important at all?" And so, yes, you're right in that, like combined relative to all the ones that were on that list, peer reviewed publications did make it to the top. Mm. However, what I thought was compelling is if you looked at the data a little bit more and you looked a little co- closely, there was actually a polarity between um, the GIM division directors. So, about 48% of those division directors did say, yeah, this is very important peer-reviewed publications, but 46% of those division directors said this was not important. Mm. So there's a, so my takeaway is that basically there's a split of GIM directors in, in when they think of a clinician educator thinking about how important a peer-reviewed uh, publication is. So I think the takeaway for listeners should be like, hey, know your, your division that you're in and know that culture, um, or if you're looking for a job, um, kind of seek out what that, those expectations or cultures are.
2: So, the publisher parish is only at specific institutions. Only
3: at 48%. Not no, it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So.
2: Publisher parish is my strategy for Twitter and Instagram.
3: <laughs> I just love how you're plugging uh, the digital modality. <laughs> I've in in social media today.
2: I'm wearing a Curbsiders t shirt.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm
2: really feeling in the role.
3: Awesome. Justin, what did you learn today?
2: I had a uh, quick side tangent, Trey, not to just, uh, avoid the question, but on our Twitter, it said uh, the Curbsiders will be wearing red t shirts today please come and say hello. And someone came and said hi and said, you are from the curbsiders? And I said, yeah, I have the curbsiders t-shirt. She said, I just went to someone else that was wearing just a normal red t-shirt and they had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so that's a shout out. The
1: plan works. The plan works. The plan works.
2: It's like I am Spartacus, kind of the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. We're all really curbsiders when you think about them. So I won't take too much microphone time, but I think a couple of things that I thought were worth mentioning. There was an update in addiction medicine um, session that... I have a lot of passion about, a lot of the studies we've talked about, um, but I think a couple of pearls that came to mind well, were worth resharing. One was this uh, Annals paper uh, by LaRoche in the Massachusetts study. It was on hot hotcakes. It was on the ACP, but really emphasized that the 12-month risk of mortality in opiate-use overdose patients that have overdose but did not get treatment was 5%. So about 1 in 20 of these will die within a year. Um, that being said, only 30% are actually getting treatment, so we a real missed opportunity to get patients... Um, the care that they need with medications like buprenorphine.
0: Justin, do you what do you think about buprenorphine requiring an X waiver? You think that'll ever go away?
2: I am so glad that you asked that question, <laughs> uh, Matthew. Um, Math- the, trouble. The,
3: Matthew
2: the, the X waiver is, I think, an antiquated uh, legislation that makes it so that In order to prescribe buprenorphine, in order to prescribe life-saving addiction medication, you have to go through this eight-hour training to get a waiver, or for uh, advanced for uh, nurse practitioners and for physician assistants, it's 24 hours. This is a huge amount of time, especially for these frontline providers. Right. So there is a slow movement of buprenorphine deregulation, and in fact, a representative in New York, Representative Tonko, um, recently. Uh, proposed a bill, the Addiction Treatment Access Improvement Act, that would be trying to increase access to life-saving buprenorphine by avoiding the buprenorphine um, waiver requirement and allowing all providers to offer this life-saving medication. And this was brought up, and I think this is something that more and more people should get to know about and hopefully support. Yeah. But Justin, do you think that's safe? I mean, isn't buprenorphine probably a dangerous medication? <laughs> Such a great question, Paul. And I think this is one of the major concerns of a lot of providers. Buprenorphine has been dem- demonstrably uh, effective and safe in Countless studies, and you. When you think about it, it seems a little silly that I remember as an intern on my first day, I was ordering IV morphine and prescribing, you know, large amounts of oxycodone potentially. Um, Pretty much unregulated. <laughs> <laughs> but yet I'm unable to write buprenorphine for addiction, you know, right. a, addiction treatment. A much safer drug that has a ceiling effect, fat, that has much lower chance of any kind of respiratory depression, has much lower chance of any type of overdose. So a very safe medication with wonderful um, data to support it. Uh, I think this is something that is, is coming into its own and, and, and the future is going to be in buprenorphine treatment for addiction.
4: Should we go to Carolyn? I think you had some other pearls about bup as well. That yeah, you wanted to yeah, up? absolutely. So I went to this this wonderful talk called buprenorphine 2.0 that just sort of focused on additional ambulatory management of folks with opioid use disorder who are receiving bup. Um, and I think one of my take-home points from there was that stimulant use is not a contraindication to buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes um, folks come in with, you know, positive cocaine. That does not mean you need to right. stop buprenorphine. You know, we're using this drug to treat the opioid use disorder mm-hmm. um, and there's really no medical consequences in terms of them truly interacting uh, for it to be a reason to stop and you shouldn't like mm-hmm. punish the patient because they're exactly they're, they have yeah. a substance use disorder right. and they sort of talk about like doing a check-in like mm-hmm. you know talking about openly using open-ended questions to right. not ignore it um, but sort of reassess and maybe offer additional resources have them check in with a social worker see if they'd be more appropriate for another sort of counseling, you know, Mm -hmm. IOP. So I thought that was great. Um, Another pearl that I thought was really helpful was buprenorphine during the perioperative period. Mm -hmm. Um, As a hospitalist, this always makes me like nervous. Like, what do I do? Do I switch to narcotics? Do I keep them on the buprenorphine? Um, And the answer is really either or. So you could either sort of taper and then use... Uh, opioids to sort of bridge, or it's completely okay just to leave the buprenorphine on. Uh, you can even split the dosing to TID or QID, and that mm-hmm. can actually give you some analgesic relief. So I think for me, that's more practice changing. Right. Is I'm probably just going to keep people on the buprenorphine and split to yeah. TID dosing, unless I think they're going to need extraordinary amounts I, of right. control. And yeah. the
0: guidance I've been told is you can you can still prescribe short-acting opioids on top of buprenorphine, yep. you just probably have to use much higher doses. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. they sort of yeah. So I don't have that. a ton of experience tr- in that situation yet, but the, the four times a day dosing should have some some pain effect because I think it lasts like six to eight yep. hours per dose. So
4: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Justin, anything else from addiction medicine?
2: The only thing that I thought was cool, they talked a little bit about transitioning uh, individuals from methadone to buprenorphine. They had a case example of someone right. who has like a prolonged QTC yeah. and wants to go over to buprenorphine. And the basic pearl was that you want to get the patient down to methadone um, dose of between 30 and 40 ideally Okay. Um, so you would have to titrate down their dose for about a week then you would stop the dose for about 72 hours before you would then start someone on buprenorphine Mm -hmm. Um, that being said it sounds like there's some data that maybe you should do it at a higher dose and one of the more innovative treatments that people are talking about is using either microdosing of buprenorphine or the butrans uh, transdermal patch so having someone on a methadone even kind of higher dose so something like 60 milligrams starting the transdermal patch and then you should just start buprenorphine the next day um, and the idea is that the transdermal patch is given a small enough dose to kind it of prevent withdrawal and, withdrawal and push them off correct exactly okay. um, and so I think this is becoming there's more and more evidence for how to do this Another great resource in Pearl Carolyn, I don't know if you had known about, it. I had never heard about this, but UCSF has something called the Warm Line. You can Google UCSF Warm Line, and it's a free telephonic consultation service Monday through Friday at any time that you can just call and say, hey, I have a patient on methadone that wants to order buprenorphine. Oh, wow. How do I do it? Or Absolutely. these are challenges. It's such a great resource mm-hmm. awesome. that I didn't know anything about.
3: I like how they call it Warm Line. Like, yeah. Yeah. There
4: needs to be more warm lines I know. in this world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back, on this great, topic, that's a great quote. <laughs> the <world makes> more <laughs> warm, so warm like, lines. All I of the sudden, all these warm right line, now. warm line one, warm line two. Warm what do all <laughs> these mean? Positive things. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there, the in one of the plenary sessions, Michael uh, Inksay from UCSF was talking about. There is a free waiver available now for buprenorphine at pcss.org. Mm-hmm. That was news to me because I know uh, when when my institution Cashlack when we got waivered, it was $200 so you can get a free waiver so that takes away now it's just a time barrier instead of a cost barrier to get your waiver.
1: I think that organization it's a fantastic organization that I'm not remembering what the PCSS really stands for but they offer mentorship as well in terms of actually starting like there's a lot of free resources a lot of education on their website. So it's in addition to the training it's just it's a great resource all the
0: way around.
5: The provider's clinical support system. All right, Nora uh,
3: just pulled a Stewart and looked yeah. something up in the middle of He's trying to take yeah. his place. Thank yeah. you, and they have three books left.
1: <laughs> Do we
3: expect puns later, Nora.
0: Nora, we haven't heard from you yet. I know Carolyn has a little bit more, but Nora, what? Why don't you? Why don't you talk a little bit about? I think you were going to talk about young adult medicine. Yeah. Where am I using the right? Early adult, I don't young know. Young
5: adult is great.
0: Young adult, um, okay. Yeah,
5: so I went to the update in young adult health and young, young adult medicine. Um, and there were a couple different interesting updates from the last year or so. Um, I guess I'll start with, uh, well, could you
0: define that first? Cause like when I heard that I was like, wait, are you, is this like a medpeds thing or?
5: So it's mostly about, uh, patients who are above the kind of 18 threshold and mm-hmm. are transitioning to care with an internist sure. or a family medicine practitioner.
0: Okay. Um, newly minted adults.
5: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess actually I'll start with the transitions of care guidelines okay. that were released last year um, and you can find them. They were published in pediatrics um, and were authored by a couple specific folks and then kind of co-authored by the um, AP, the AFP, the ACP. Um, so kind of all of the societies for mm-hmm. the different um, stakeholders. Um, and the report was primarily a literature review and expert opinion about kind of how to best uh, facilitate the transition of care um, from pediatric practice to adult practice in whatever form that is. Um, and so one of the takeaways that I thought was the most important was um, this recommendation um, and reminder to practitioners um, not to assume that young adult patients know how to navigate the healthcare system independently, um, which I think is pretty profound and relevant. Um, I think when We think of young adults, we often think, oh, they're very competent. They are now adults, um, and they know how to use technology, for example. Um, And so they must know how to navigate this healthcare system, when in fact, oftentimes, it will be the first time that they have had to navigate it independently, um, and they may not actually know how to have a conversation with their doctor. Um, So I thought it was a very... um,
0: did they give a way, like a practical way, to kind of overcome that?
5: No. Okay. Um, they did. They did recommend that uh, you have kind of. Young person friendly interfaces and allow for patients to email um, communications, have patient portals that are more technology friendly. Um, so okay. I think that that's kind of one slightly indirect way of mm-hmm. doing this. Um, and then also having um, documents that are basically checklists for patients and their families to make sure that you're not missing anything and that they're not missing anything and the steps to do to get enrolled at your clinic, that sort of thing. So those are kind of two pieces of it.
1: Not so much in terms of warm handoffs. I think we talked about no. this a little bit in our sickle cell episode, where but not a whole lot of role for sort of talking to their pediatric doctor.
5: Um, Some role for that. Um, and in fact, they were recommending that Uh, pediatricians often should be seeing the patients until you've done the handoff. Um, But um, no explicit language or questions to ask the pediatrician. I think a handoff can never hurt. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Fair. Without a doubt.
0: And you were telling us that there's a couple kind of chronic conditions that you were just kind of disease-specific things that you wanted to talk about in this population.
5: Um, So I'll go through them relatively quickly. So childhood kidney disease, which encompasses a bunch of different things. It can be as uh, simple as pyelonephritis, or it, can in- it also includes congenital kidney anomalies, um, which a number of children have. Um, and uh, there was a study published in the New England Journal last year um, about how these uh, childhood kidney diseases um, affected uh, kidney uh, kidney like, function and, later on, right. um, and the risk of developing end-stage renal disease, and found that um, the bucket kind of across the board childhood kidney disease did actually put um, people at increased risk of developing end-stage renal disease, and also developing it early, um, yeah, lower than forty, um, pretty dramatically.
0: Which means we should probably should be screening for that with in, in young adults when we're seeing them in, in clinic.
5: Exactly. It would be very appropriate to ask on an intake exam, do you have a history of uh, kidney infections right. or um, any sort of kidney disease um, as a youth?
0: So on a related topic, what if they what if their blood pressure is like 134? Do I care about that?
5: We do. Okay. Um, there were actually two studies. That was a great transition. Thank um, you. <laughs> I've
0: been doing this for a yeah. while now. <laughs> yeah, no.
5: Um, so there were two studies in the last year about uh, the 130 to 139 systolic range. Um, and there's a new definition by the uh, ACC AHA um, labeling that as stage 1 hypertension. Um, And what to do with that in general, but specifically in young adults, um, had been kind of up in the air. And so there were two studies in JAMA published last year um, that looked at the um, risk of cardiovascular mortality and just cardiovascular disease um, in patients who had stage one hypertension as um, young adults. And uh, they concluded that uh, actually having stage one hypertension when you're younger does pose um, significant cardiovascular health risks and overall health risk um, to patients. And then a second follow-up study actually looked at intervening on the um, stage one hypertension and treating it right. um, and found that that could mitigate the cardiovascular and health risks almost completely. Yeah. Um, so suggest that we should be treating like, earlier.
0: Paul doesn't to, to me that would be like, I, I just wonder if these are like people who are not, you know, they're stressed out, they're overweight, they're not, they're not exercising. Maybe that. Maybe it's a marker of just overall morbidity.
1: I feel like we're practically married now because I think you must have been reading my facial expressions. <laughs> like I was sitting here in pain, looking constipated. Because yeah, I, I wonder if that's not a marker for sort of other other comorbid conditions. I think yeah. that's exactly right. Either either at home stress or elevated adrenergic levels for whatever. Or more commonly obesity. And if you intervene on those things, I wonder if you would mitigate the same effect. I'm not sure if they stratified out um, that or not. But I, that would be sort of my gestalt. I just I hate. I, I, I hate the idea of treating it at that young an age for like 131 yeah. systolic. Like that just but kills I, me.
0: I mean, it would just seem practically that if you couldn't see a modifiable risk factor, then maybe you would be stuck treating or at least having a conversation about it.
1: Yeah, you know, especially, especially if you get a background of family history, the significant or, or other mitigating yeah. factors. But just if if there's other stuff going on, you have a better explanation that you could intervene upon. I feel like that'd be my preference because more often than not, it'll be lifestyle and diet and right. uh, modification of other, other things that are not necessarily involving – lifelong pharmacologic therapy yeah
4: yeah which is they're... what we should be doing in the first right. place right, is right. like really yeah, I, yeah, I mean yeah. i think that like the young adult is the perfect patient to really encourage early on like yeah. make these lifestyle changes now how can we help you with this and it can really change someone's trajectory like we should be doing it more at this point yeah, in the game than one where you know this my patient in the 60s who i'm like okay all right that's but, like i'm gonna keep doing my diet yeah.
1: yeah i'm so sorry for interrupting yeah. No, I saw that study and I think I cheerfully ignored it just because I really did worry it was going to be a mandate to, not, to just go ahead and throw a medication at rather than have that, have the hard conversation. So anyway,
0: yeah. So the, okay. the other, the other thing I know you want to talk about is the, the HPV vaccine, because when I think of young adults, I mostly think of like, you know, sexually transmitted infections, like substance use accidents, things like that. I, I, I wasn't thinking of the high blood pressure, but what, what's the latest on the HPV vaccine?
5: Um, a couple updates. So the one latest update uh, in the last year, the HPV9 valent vaccine was approved by the FDA for use in adults who are 27 to 45. Um, there have not been guidelines released on uh, whether or not we should be giving it right. to that age bracket. Um, it is currently recommended for uh Females who are um, 11 to 26, and then males who are 11 to 21, and then 22 to 26 in certain high-risk groups. Um but the kind of extension remains to be seen. Um, the society that recommends that will probably be speaking on it at some point in the next yeah. year or so. And we think. talked
0: about this yesterday on our LGBT episode. And basically, they were saying that it's a it's a problem getting it covered for patients that are older. But it's it's probably it seems like that's the direction we're moving, or people feel like that's probably the right thing to do.
5: Yeah, and we had an interesting conversation that didn't actually resolve. In one specific answer about whether or not people who were vaccinated with the HPV4 quadrivalent vaccine um, should be uh, receiving like added um, kind of revaccination with the nine yeah. valent um
0: Sounds like the pneumococcal. Jury's out
5: about that, yeah. There's
0: two pneumococcal vaccines. We're giving both of those. So yeah. it seems like a similar.
1: Unfortunately, yeah, because the algorithm has destroyed many a resident. So I, like,
5: yeah, the less complicated, <laughs> probably the better off will be. For That's everybody. true. That's a good point. Um, uh, th- the study that um, came out about the HPV vaccine um, Efficacy uh, revealed that it is effective um, in HPV vaccinated uh, groups and then also provides a decent amount of herd immunity um, in unvaccinated uh adults and youth, um, which is important because we still actually don't have great uptake on the vaccine. Um, Among females 13 to 17, only 63% had had one dose according to kind of the latest um, data. Um, And then 42% had had all three doses. So.
0: Yeah, it's it's a shame that it's a vaccine that prevents cancer and that there's some social issues with, or like kind of, there's some bad press about parents thinking that means their kids are going to become sexually active at like age 11 if you vaccinate them, which I just think is kind of unfounded. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> totally. yeah. Yeah, I,
5: I did just see the first um, male targeted ad on TV for the Gardasil or okay. the HPV vaccine. Yeah. Um, it's real dark. It's dark. <laughs> <Right>? It's really <laughs> dark. Um, but it was the first that I'd seen, because I remember... Um, right when it came out I was like in that targeted bracket and it was much um, cheerier and yeah. much more like female targeted yeah. um, for the longest time and so this was the first one I'd seen okay um, it is pretty dark <laughs> wow All right. yeah
0: how are we doing time wise Paul do we Half hour in, at least that's
5: how
1: okay. long we've been
0: recording. All right, why don't we why don't we go to Carolyn? Carolyn, what else? Uh, what else did you have for us today? I understand you gave a workshop. I wanted to hear. I didn't get to make it to that. So give me some pearls to catch me yeah, up.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I helped run a workshop today with my colleagues, Dr. Sally Nambutri and Dr. Tamika Campbell. They've just done amazing work at curriculum development um, for residents in terms of resident mistreatment. At, You know, what happens when residents are mistreated by their patients in particular? Because I think this is so challenging, right? Patients are a vulnerable population, but also residents are vulnerable as well. And they looked at a lot of the data and they were sort of seeing that, you know, if residents are mistreated, it increases their rates of burnout. Um, which is super important sort of in the healthcare system and as they go along in their career. So I thought what was really helpful about this session in particular is that they gave specific language. And actually a lot of this research has been done in the physical therapy world. Uh, so they're I think they're a little bit ahead in terms of how do we manage this with our patients. Uh, so in regards to sexual harassment, uh, one of my favorite sort of Phrasings that we can sort of use is this concept called I think, I feel, I want. So, an example from that would be, you know, I don't think you meant to upset me. I felt angry when you commented on my body, and I want our relationship to remain professional. And they did a lot about how just sort of having a standard go to in your head can sort of like prevent that freezing moment. Cause I can think back of like when I was a new intern and patients would say inappropriate things, like I didn't know what to do, right? Right. You just yeah. feel. Yeah, no it's one done. tells you. No one tells you, right? Right. And some like it's never appropriate for anyone to sort of harass. But in some ways, it's like, oh, if it was someone in the hierarchy, I feel like at, when I was in training, I would know how to manage that better than when I patient did that. Um, and I feel like, in from personal experience, patients harass at higher rates, at least in my institution, than the faculty. Um, another another really good line that they give was this concept of active listening and broken record. So, an example would be, um, you know, it's unfortunate that you feel like I led you on. I need you to stop commenting on my body. And if they come back again, then you keep repeating it. Like, I understand that you did not intend to upset me, but I need you to stop commenting on my body. Again, just to, like, really draw that firm line. Don't ramble. and Just sort of, like, give that concrete statement. Um, And then the third and final example that they gave was, like, a positive-negative warning. So, if you stop trying to touch me and comment on my body, I will stay and help you. Uh, and if you continue to try and touch me and make these inappropriate comments, then, then I will leave. Uh, so, I think sort of having those three sort of phrases in my repertoire has been like very helpful. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Thank you for sharing those.
0: Yeah.
1: And the workshop itself it was part of it actually just saying those things directly, actually saying them out loud. I think Abby Spencer was talking a little bit about something similar yesterday where it was yeah. just helpful to actually have to, even though it's sort of challenging to do so because it kind of... Yeah, um, yeah, but actually, being forced to sort of say the words.
4: Yeah, we did. We we had split them up into groups, and we did different cases. So one more sexual harassment, and one more um like racial bigotry. Uh, so we got to hear from each other and l- learn from each other. You know, what do you do? What's your phrasing? Because I don't think that there's any um there's nothing that's perfect, right? right. You got to have some tools depending on the context of what to do. I think what something that was really interesting that um they brought up is, you know, when a patient is being sort of just racially insensitive, when do you decide to transfer care to another provider was a really complex thing that yeah. we discussed.
0: Was there an answer? Like It is <laughs> complicated.
4: Yeah. It depends on it depends on the situation, right? Because yeah. we don't want to reward that we don't want to reward inappropriate right. behavior. We don't want to say, oh, you know, I I only want to see white physicians. We don't want to reward that and just transfer to another, you know, white physician. So depending on institutional policies, um, another policy where I where I'm from is that we don't transfer based on sort of race, race alone. Um so so usually it's like a multidisciplinary sort of approach. So sort of you go in, you discuss. If it's the intern, you sort of have a discussion outside the room about where to go and what to do. Um, the preference being not transferring care. Um, but there are circumstances, you know. But to a sure. point, really you have like to protect
1: the yeah. physicians and the trainees, too, from being in a hostile situation. So it's, yeah. it's tough.
0: Did you have anything else? I had, I had one or two random things from yesterday that I uh, sort of left over uh, that I wanted to go through. Um, but anything else before? Yeah.
4: No, I think that those are like my big take-home points. It was another great, great day at SGM. That's how we're <laughs> right, saying we it. You're okay. yeah, yeah. all right? <laughs> okay. That feels like a real white I think I'm SGM also. You're you're SGM. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I'm I saying
0: SGIM, but I pro- I yeah. mispronounce most I'm things. One them. I'm one i
1: fine. I'll be Sigmund. Okay. That's
0: cool. Well, Paul. Paul and I went to. Uh, you know, I I had to support my good friend Paul Williams. Medical cannabis. They were talking about it yesterday. Uh, I think Pipe Dream was in the title. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of great faculty there. And they were talking about uh, kind of the big take-home points for me were that medical cannabis, we're still there's still more unanswered questions out there than, than answers. And you should be careful with it. Um, but there's not a lot of identified risks. The main risk that I would identify is patients should know that they're going to be impaired if they're using it and driving. I know there's a whole thing about psychosis, but I think that you know I maybe that's just selection by or you know, people self-medicating. they were gonna they were gonna become psychotic anyway. I don't know. but the for pain treatment specifically, which was what the cases we were going through were talking about, the uh, they said that this should be really a late resort, not necessarily a last resort, but patients should have tried. Other things first, like non-pharmacologic therapies and the basic analgesics. And if, there, if all that's failing, then you might consider this. Uh, medical cannabis really has the most evidence uh, for neuropathic type pain. The evidence is very weak for MSK pain. Paul, can you talk about the, the certifying process and some of the pearls they were talking about there?
1: Yeah, it's, I feel like it always, where we get a little bit tripped up is that we don't prescribe, we certify that someone's appropriate for it. And you can sort of specify um, ratios between CBD and THC. I'm not sure all prescribers, and prescribers is maybe not even the right term, all certifiers even have comfort with that level of specificity. So generally what happens is you give the patient a certification, and then you go to their bud tender, a term that I really struggle with. And then at that point, um, they can then help select a product that might best suit their needs. Um but you know, some of the issues that you run into is this is not covered by any insurance. So it's all this is out of pocket, so it might be cost prohibitive. So for people who are resource limited, it's, it's probably not the best possible option. Um, and then I think some people struggle with just the fact that you are not prescribing. You are certifying so someone can go out and sort of whatever happens after you give that certification um, can kind of be up in the air. But I, I think one of the things that I found helpful in this particular workshop was the idea of actually you can restrict your certification to a, a period of time, say three months, yeah. so the patient can come back and then reassess and you can talk about efficacy and if you need to modify the plan or not. So you can have some control and feel like you're part of the patient's, the patient's therapeutic plan as opposed to kind of just um, so you're sort of them loose out in the world.
0: And a couple of things about... Um to to follow up to what you said, the the ca- it's a cash only business for the medical cannabis. So if you want to send some to a bud tender, they have to pay cash right now. It's not covered by insurance. It's actually cheaper for patients to buy cannabis on the street. The problem is that can have all sorts of things, other things. The presenters were talking about K two and whatnot. So it's it's not. We don't think it's safer. So one presenter was making the point, I'd rather have them go get the medical cannabis where I at least know where they're getting. As far as dosing goes, uh, most, in general, they think that a one-to-one ratio of THC to CBD might be, you know, that's that was the, I think, like the starting ratio Mm and probably the most common one that's used. And I think there's some formulations that specifically have that. THC having more of the sort of like psycho, like the CNS effects, the the ones that you typically associate with, with smoking marijuana, and then CBD seems to be more, maybe more nicely balanced where it doesn't have those effects, but it does have some of the pain effects that you're looking for. And so they said, you know, those there's formulations of that that are, that are available. But if you're going to use the THC only products, uh, they st- suggest starting at 2.5 to 5 milligram uh, doses. And I think it goes up to a 10 milligram uh, tablet is the, is the highest dose, they said. And I also learned that uh, one joint has about 60 milligrams of THC and one hit has probably about 10 milligrams of THC. So that's just to kind of quantify that for you. This is going to be a rapidly evolving area. So we, that's, that's pretty much all we can say right now. So kind of like stay tuned.
1: I think one of the presenters actually made the point that they just found a CBD receptor like 10 years ago. Like yeah. this is not Yeah. like we're, we're still like, on the frontiers. There's
0: more than a hundred cannabinoids. Yeah. Um, so, and if you want to, if you want more on this, we we did do an episode uh, with, uh, we did do an episode on medical cannabis a while back. I actually don't remember the number, surprisingly, Paul, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was a good one. So you could go back and listen to that. Uh, anything else, Paul, before we wrap up here?
1: Um, no, I think when the updates in addiction medicine, I think was something that I don't recall we ever talked about on the show. Uh, was the one meta-analysis that was done with alcohol use. I feel like there's always some debate as to what level is protective, and there's always some hint as maybe if you just hit the sweet spot of the J-shaped curve, you got mortality benefit or at least decreased cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, Because we know that a bunch of alcohol is not great, but maybe a little bit is kind of helpful. And then we always sort of hedge our bets. But don't counsel patients to drink for cardiovascular risk reduction, which is, I think, wise advice. But there was just a recent uh, Lancet, I want to say it was a meta-analysis, that looked at a bunch of data sources on alcohol consumption. And then looked at exposure and then uh, risks of health hazards. And basically there's this monotonic increase in adverse outcomes starting at one drink per day. So even one drink a day is associated with worsening outcomes. Obviously the more you drink, sort of the more bad health outcomes that you have. But it, it looks at least, um, if you collect all the data sources and aggregate the data, if you look at it, that really no amount of alcohol consumption or at least routine alcohol consumption is safe. So I thought that was um, interesting at least.
0: Yeah, and again this is observational, so maybe that's just selecting for other other, you know, risk factors. So it's it's not necessarily a causal relationship, but uh, probably don't drink if you think you're doing it just to, to benefit your health. Like, right. if you're I, not drinking already, maybe maybe that's just stay away from it. <laughs> I,
1: I think, because I don't think it's that long ago. I think I feel like I even heard my parents, well, actually, one of my parents' old doctors told them that they it was okay to smoke a cigarette or two a day because it made you sort of regulate your breathing. And I, <laughs> so... I mean, this wow. is like back in the days, like smoking on TV while you're trying to diagnose stuff. But like, I don't think that we should be prescriptive and say, well, how about a glass of wine to reduce your your, your cardiovascular
4: risk? That seems like a yeah.
1: genuinely bad idea.
4: I always wonder, like 50 years in the future, what are the doctors going to say? Like, I can't believe that they were, they were doing <laughs> that. Like, oh, wow, what a terrible idea.
1: I mean, even now as we're sort of peeling off aspirin, which just, you know, it seems so safe on the face of it. And we actually know it just has a bunch of bad outcomes. Like it's all the stuff we do. We're still constantly reassessing, which is kind of one of the joys of medicine, but also one of his frustrations.
0: Yeah, so I think that's a great high point to end on. Sure. Paul. Yeah.
1: <laughs> going to go into law.
0: Tired of and uh, so we will be back uh, next next week. We'll be back with full shows, and uh, the we we recorded a bunch of full episodes at S G I M S Jim Howard Sigum. <laughs> Uh, and uh, those, those will be coming out uh, probably sometime in June. So look out for those.
1: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
4: Yummy.
0: <laughs> when I just randomly point at you, you didn't know that? <laughs> no, I was like... <laughs> I totally set you up
1: okay get your show notes at the curbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at the curbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox
0: and we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge so we always love to hear your feedback send an email to the curbsiders at gmail.com we'd always like to thank our team that was here uh nora carolyn justin shreya And to uh, Hannah Abrams, who has been like remotely somehow tweeting this meeting, (laughs) and to uh, Chris the Chew Man Chew and Beth Garbs Garbatelli, thank you for all you do. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
4: I'm Nora Toronto. I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan. And
1: we'll say our sweet goodbyes on behalf of Justin Burke and Shreya Trivedi, and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
0: Shrabies has left the building. (laughs)
1: Super (laughs) solid stuff.
5: (laughs) It's uh, a. Should we do it again? Good group morale, yeah. yeah. Not that fun. (laughs) Great.